Well, a very good morning to you. It's great to join you. I know not physically, but virtually, it's great to be with you uh, in your living rooms or wherever you happen to be watching this. Um, Thank you for all your prayers. Uh, I'm praying for you, and uh, I really do hope we can see each other soon. Uh, But thank you for joining us this morning. Now, it'd be a great help if you could keep that passage open in John 18. And uh, hopefully you would have got one of the service sheets sent out. uh, And on the back of the service sheets, you'll see there's an outline for where we're planning to go this morning. Uh, I'm going to open in a prayer, uh, and then we'll take a closer look at this passage. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this great passage of Jesus approaching his death. And we pray, Father, as we think on it now, that you would give us understanding of what it is saying, and that, Father, you would speak to each one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're asking the question, why does Jesus' death matter? Why is the cross so important? It's a question that lots in our society will have as they look at the church, uh, because it's not obvious why the brutal crucifixion of its founder should be so significant. I mean, when you read most biographies, the death of a person uh, features on the last couple of pages. It's a kind of footnote to the main event of their life. But yet, when it comes to the church, it's so different, isn't it? We speak about Jesus' death, we sing about Jesus' death, we have a symbol of Jesus' death in the cross, we celebrate Jesus' death, even calling uh, our day Good Friday. But we might ask that question, why does Jesus' death matter, in a different way? Uh, Maybe we understand why the cross matters to the church, but why does it matter to me personally? Uh, And why does it matter to everyone else? I mean, why should the cross affect my next-door neighbour, my office colleague, my family member? Uh, Again, it's not obvious, is it, why the death of a first-century leader should matter to a people on a different continent 20 centuries later. So this morning we're asking this one question, why does Jesus' death matter? And we're going to hear the answer from no less than one of Jesus' disciples. We're going to John the Apostle, and we're looking at John's Gospel, and we're going to hear what he says about Jesus' death and why it matters. Now, this uh, passage in John is sandwiched between the Last Supper and the trial before Pilate. And what I think it does is to show us the significance of what Jesus is about to do. See, the, the way Jesus gets arrested here and the way he responds to the interrogation, I think, reveals what's actually going on when he goes to the cross. And through those events, John's showing us three important things this morning. Uh, First of all, that the cross is an offering. Uh, Secondly, that the cross is a necessity. And thirdly, the cross is the only way. See, the first thing we see then is that the cross is an offering. Now, why use that word offering? I mean, we wouldn't normally say that a death is an offering. Death kind of breaks in. It takes people. Uh, We don't offer ourselves to death. So why is Jesus' death an offering? Well, notice where Jesus goes, first of all. He goes to a garden. Uh, But this isn't any old garden. We're we're told in verse 2 that he often met there with his disciples. 
Now, if you're on the run from the police, and I'm not speaking from personal experience here, but if you are on the run from the police, the one place you don't go is the place you always go. You don't go home, you don't go to the office, you don't go to your favourite pub. You pack your bags, buy plane tickets, and get out of there quick. But notice, Jesus does the opposite. We're told that knowing all that was about to happen to him, he goes to the one place he can be found. Uh, Secondly, look at Jesus' response. Uh, Judas marches in with uh, Roman soldiers. We we could be talking 600 here, 200. Uh, It's the equivalent of sending in the riot police uh, over a parking offence. And at that moment, uh, just imagine the terror. What does Jesus do? Well, look at verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want See, there's no fleeing to the countryside, no running away under the cover of darkness. Jesus comes out to meet these soldiers. Uh, Maybe we think to ourselves, well, this is Jesus just knowing that the game is up. Uh, You know, if someone's on the run and they hear the helicopter in the distance, they can hear the dogs barking, they run into a dead end. Uh, What do they do? They put their arms up in surrender. And so we might think this is Jesus doing the equivalent. But notice that isn't right. Because look at what else happens. Thirdly, what else happens? Look at what happens when he speaks in verse 5. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, verse 4, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas, the traitor, was standing there with him. Here's the key point. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, in the Bible, people fall to the ground when they meet a power that is too great for them. Uh, You'll remember that Daniel falls to the ground uh, when he sees his visions. And these riot police fall to the ground as Jesus utters those words, I am he. In fact, in the original, the words are simply, I am. And you'll know from the Old Testament that that is God's name. Uh, He calls himself in Exodus, I am who I am. And Jesus takes that divine name on his lips, and as he speaks, I am, the might of this Roman regiment collapses to the ground. Now, why are we told these details? Why are we told about the garden where he always went to? Why are we told about him coming forward and, uh, and, and, and putting himself in front of these soldiers? Why are we told about them falling down? Well, it's so that you and me will be in no doubt that Jesus is in complete control. There's no struggle, there's no escape, there's no wrestling with the soldiers as they try and put the handcuffs on. Jesus is in complete dominance here. So if that's true, if Jesus has complete power over all these events and knows exactly what's going on, what is he doing being arrested? Well, there's only one explanation that fits, isn't there? He's allowing it. He's offering himself. See, Jesus' death is not that the plan went wrong. It's not like Jesus started something and it kind of got out of hand. It's not like he bit off more than he could chew. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He was in complete control. Death was all part of his plan. See, Jesus knows exactly what the cross is going to mean for him. He knows the pain. He knows the shame. He knows the anguish. And yet... He goes there willingly. 
But I don't know about you, that raises the obvious question, doesn't it? Why? I mean, if Jesus knew that death was looking so likely, if he knew what was going to happen, why go through with it? I know if I was in that circumstance, I would run a mile. But notice what Jesus does as he's arrested. Uh, See, have a look at verse 8. Jesus says this, I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words that he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. See, Jesus doesn't say, well, if I'm going down, my disciples are going down with me. He says, no, take me, let these men go. But if we look closely, we see that there's more going on in this verse. Uh, Notice verse 9 again. John is saying that this fulfills what Jesus had earlier promised. Now, earlier on in John's Gospel, Jesus speaks about saving his disciples. And uh, there's a quote, uh, hopefully on your screens, from John chapter 6, verse 39. Uh, And in that quote, Jesus says this, I shall lose none of all those that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. Do you notice that extra bit? He's going to raise them up on the last day. So Jesus, uh, standing here at his arrest, is, is not just kind of uh, securing freedom for his disciples for, for a period. It's not just uh, him getting them out of the cells for a night. This is Jesus showing what he's going to do on a far deeper scale. See, he's showing here that he's offering himself for his disciples in an eternal sense. See, he says not only to them, but to all his disciples, take me, let these go. Now, why does Jesus need to do that? Why does he need to offer himself? Well, verse 11 tells us, uh, we're going to come back to verse 11 at the end, but Jesus command Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The cup is um, a well-known image in the Old Testament of God's anger uh, at sin. Uh, Jeremiah and Isaiah, the two two of the major prophets, uh, call it the cup of God's wrath. But notice who's drinking this cup. Jesus is. Jesus says, take me, let them go. Let me die so that they may not die. Let me drink the cup of my father's anger so that they don't have to taste it. Take me, let them go. See, John is showing us clearly, isn't he, what the cross is about, why it matters to all of us. See, the the cross isn't just some sad ending to a promising young leader. It isn't just the death of a martyr for a political cause. This is the moment when God the Son offers himself for people like you and me. You may have came across the um, true story of, uh, that came out a couple of weeks ago of the Italian priest uh, who con- um, got the coronavirus. Uh, I think his name was uh, Don Berardelli. Uh, and very sadly, he died in mid-March. Um, but the circumstances of his death were utterly remarkable. Uh, one of the healthcare workers who were treating him uh, said that he was offered a, a ventilator, but he refused it. See, he refused it because he knew that the ventilators in that part of Italy were in short supply, and there, was, there were younger people who could have benefited from those ventilators. And so he gave it up so that someone else could enjoy it. 
So even though it meant death for him, he gave the ventilator so that another unknown to him could live. It's a remarkable story. I was completely moved when I read it. It is completely humbling, isn't it? But it is the story of the cross, except that Jesus does it on a far larger scale. Jesus says, take me, let them go. Perhaps you, you are someone who feels that burden of sin. Perhaps you're acutely aware of your failures. And perhaps something like the current crisis has a double, uh, double effect on you. It causes anxiety. Uh, not only do you worry about contracting the virus and all that that might mean, but you worry that if things went badly wrong, how you might stand before God the Father. But here we see that in Christ we need not fear. Because Jesus says, take me, he says, let them go. By trusting him, we need not fear what the future brings. But secondly, uh, and moving on to our second point, we might understand why Jesus died, what's going on, but we might still ask that question, why does it matter to me? Why does the cross affect me personally? I remember years ago, I took a work colleague to a Christmas service, and um, it was a great service that the minister spoke uh, about Jesus and uh, which is always a good start, uh, what he did, uh, what he achieved, uh, and why he died. And I, I, it was a great talk, and I remember turning to my work colleague afterwards and, and asking what she thought, and she turned to me and she said, yeah, I thought it was a great talk, it was very moving. But it's a shame, she said, that there aren't the people here who need to hear it. I, I guess the assumption was that this message was for others, I guess the down and outs, the people whose lives are a mess, but not for people like her. Uh, not for people like me. Now, I don't blame her for that view because lots of us can fall into that thinking, can't we? That the cross isn't for us. It's for people who have made a mess, but not us. And even as a Christian, I don't know about you, the cross can become very familiar. We can go through the cycle of Good Friday and Easter every year and it can kind of lose its impact. But the second section of this passage shows us why the cross is for exactly like people like you and me. Now, how does it do that? Well, the action uh, switches from Jesus to Peter. Uh, and interestingly, we haven't seen Peter for quite a few chapters now. If, uh, if you know the context of John, Peter pops up uh, in chapter 13 uh, with the foot washing, but uh, we haven't actually heard from him uh, since then. Uh, and I just want us to revisit Peter's words in chapter 13. Uh, You can turn with me, it's chapter 13, verse 36, or hopefully the passage will uh, appear on your screens. See, here's what Peter uh, says to Jesus. John 13, verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow later. Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Now, Peter is what you might call confident. Uh, Confident is uh, the sort of word that was written on my um, school reports as uh, a bit full of it and probably talk too much. Uh, Peter is someone who thinks he can do what it takes. 
Uh, Jesus says to follow him means laying down your life, and Peter goes, well, no problem. Of course I can do that. But now, in chapter 18, we get to the test. Peter's got a chance to stand by his big claim. How does he get on? Well, it's worth just having in mind some of the geography here, because we've moved from the garden to the house of the high priest. Now, the house of the high priest was a pretty exclusive place, I guess a bit like Downing Street or something. It wasn't the sort of place you could just walk into. Uh, But we're told that an unnamed disciple, which is probably John, uh, was known to the high priest, and so he's able to walk into the courtyard. Uh, But Peter, meanwhile, is left outside, and uh, this unnamed disciple realizes Peter's outside, and so he goes out to, to fetch Peter in and vouch for him. But there's a problem. There's a bouncer on the tour. Now, of course, bouncer is really stretching it. This, uh, this is a girl, probably a servant girl in the house, probably very young. Uh, and, and read what happens in verse 17. She says, you're not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I am not. Now, notice two things about what happens here. First of all, notice the threat. It's a girl on the door. Now, I don't want to be disrespectful. I've got a young daughter myself, but they are not a threat. They may think they're a threat, uh, but they're not a threat, at least to a grown fisherman. And secondly, notice Peter's response. He says, I am not. In the original, it's the negative of the exact same words that Jesus says. Jesus says, I am. Peter says, I am not. See, Peter falls massively at the first hurdle, and it's not even a hurdle. Peter said he would lay down his life for Jesus, and he can't even face the sophisticated interrogation techniques of a young servant girl. But it gets even worse. How's it get worse? Well, the action cuts back to Jesus in the house, and Jesus remarkably stands by everything he said. Uh, Look at verse 20 with me. He says, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what is said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials near him struck him in the face. Is this how you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied testify to what is wrong, but if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? See, this is a proper threat, isn't it? This isn't just some primary school bouncer. This is the top of the religious establishment interrogating his teaching. Uh, These are the people who Jesus knows are about to hand him over to the Romans who are then going to staple him uh, to a wooden beam But what does Jesus do? Does he say, I overstated things. I'll keep my mouth shut from now on. No, he stands by everything. But just as Jesus does that, the action then switches back to Peter. Uh, Look at what Peter's doing, verse 25. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, you're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. 
It's very clear, isn't it? Peter's initial denial was not a one-off mistake. It wasn't a quick lie uh, to get past the bouncer. This was a resolute denying of his master when his master needed him most. See, one commentator says that Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing, while Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. But we may look at that and think, why does Peter affect me? Okay, he failed miserably, and he shouldn't have done. But why does that affect me 20 centuries later? Well, Peter represents the best of us. See, it's important to see this. Peter wasn't a Judas, was he? Uh, He wanted to love Jesus. He wanted to show devotion. Uh, He wanted to stand by his master. He wanted to show faith. He was up for the idea of being a Christian. But he hadn't learned the first lesson of being a Christian, that he couldn't do it himself. See, Peter thought that he had it within him. He could stand on his own two feet. He was good enough. He was strong enough. But as he uttered those words, I am not, the reality of his cowardice came as a crushing reality check. See, Peter's poor performance shows us why the cross is necessary for people like you and me. Because even this lead disciple who had been with Jesus so long and promised so much failed at the first hurdle. I think there's a bit of Peter in all of us, isn't there, if we're, if we're honest. There's a bit of us that says, I'm not too bad. There's a bit of us that thinks, yeah, of course, I'm strong enough to follow Jesus. Perhaps a bit of us that looks back to that decision to follow Jesus, and we, we kind of pat ourselves on the back. But Peter shows us what we're truly like. None of us can show the devotion that's expected. Put us in the same situation as Peter, and I have no doubt all of us will fail in the way that he does. See, Peter needs the cross. He didn't realize that. And we need the cross. And through his example, we see why. See, the cross isn't just for people out there, is it? It's not just for the down and outs. It's for people like Peter. It's for people who are in church. And I I don't know about you, but as I've been reflecting on this and the, the approach to Easter, it's just been such an encouragement to remember, Rob, you need this. You need God's grace just as much as anyone else. Now, as we come to a close, what should we take from this? Well, my third point um, is not a full point, you'll be relieved to know, uh, but it's where I want us to finish this morning. See, uh, back when Jesus is arrested, uh, we skipped over it, but but Peter pulls out his sword in verse 10 and cuts uh, the high priest's servant right ear. And you think it's a moment where Peter's showing his caliber. He's standing up for his friend. I I like to imagine Peter just standing there with this kind of bloody ear saying to Jesus, look what I've done for you. But Jesus sees straight through Peter, doesn't he? Uh, Look at what he says in verse 11. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? See, what might look good on the surface is actually covert pride. See, actually what's going on here in Peter's heart is he hasn't seen his need for the cross. He he hasn't grasped his sin, has he? 
He hasn't seen the predicament if he's in. If he did, he would let Jesus go to the cross. And Jesus tells him, put your sword away. Let me drink the cup of my father's wrath. And those words to Peter are words that jump out to you and me as well, isn't it? It's like Jesus says to us, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup? Now, of course, I know we're not pulling out swords, we're not cutting off ears. If we are, please stop. That's not the thing to do. This is not a model. But it is so easy, like Peter, isn't it, to stand on our proud heroics, to think we can do it. We don't need the cross. We can stand up when uh, the fight comes to us. But Jesus says, look, you're not okay on your own. You don't have that power within yourself to show the devotion to God that is required. You're not self-sufficient. You're not self-made. But the great news this morning is that Jesus saves people who recognize that. He doesn't expect us to have some great moral credential, some great ability or strength within us to, to follow him and stand up for him. That's not the people. It's people like Peter who fail miserably And yet, by the time we get to the end of the gospel, we see Jesus restoring Peter, welcoming people like Peter into his kingdom. People who have failed, people like you, people like me. And Jesus says to us all, put the sword away. Come to me. I'm going to drink the cup of my father's wrath. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this great news of the cross. Thank you that Jesus did not run, but stood and said, take me, let these go. And Father, we pray that as we enter into this week ahead and Good Friday and Easter, that you would drive these truths into our hearts. Please, Father, help us to flee from our self-sufficiency And please, Father, help us to flee to the cross. And we praise you for that work. In Jesus' name, amen.